We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You know, this Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students. America first. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. Hello, welcome to We the Deplorables, the place for all things faith, family, and freedom. And tonight, I just want to apologize beforehand for how weird I sound. I am fighting off a head cold, which is very rare. I actually don't feel bad at all, uh, but I do sound like I have a stuffy nose, because I do. But we're going to continue our examination of the Christian left. We probably have about two to three episodes left on this topic. And tonight, I wanted to go into another dangerous doctrine because we've discussed a lot of the different doctrines that are in the Christian left. And this one is that mankind is generally good and made in his image. Now, you would think that that's absolutely the case because the Bible says man was created in the image of God. Well, that was before the fall. After the fall, Genesis 5-3 starts letting us know that man was actually creating the image of fallen man, that is Adam. So if man was generally good and made in his image, then there would have been no need for Jesus to come because Jesus came not to save uh, good people or bad people, but to give us his nature because that is the only way to go to heaven. We must have his nature. It's not about how bad you are that will send you to hell, and it's not how good you are that will get you into heaven. It is, are you born again? And according to John 3, that is required uh, to see the kingdom. It is required to taste the kingdom, and it is required in order to enter the kingdom. And uh, so Jesus, coming as a man, 100% God, but he lived life as a man on the earth in right relationship with Father, full of the Holy Ghost, set the model of who we are now as new creation beings. And the word or phrase, born again, that he used in John chapter 3 literally means born from above. And so it's very important that we understand these truths because unfortunately a lot of people don't know that and we even have some people are like, well, you know, uh, why would God send people that are good to hell? And it's not whether you are good or bad, it is, are you born again? And the only way to be born again is to believe in the one whom the Father sent. And that is what uh, causes the new creation to occur. And so really it is a question of uh, faith in Jesus. And it's a question of that faith turning into action. Now, there was a man who came to the Lord, and he called him good teacher. And in Mark 10, 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one, that is God. Now, I kind of think that Jesus may have been uh, hinting uh, for this uh, young man to get the idea that Jesus was the Christ, God in the flesh, because we know that Jesus was good. And so he might have said that just to grab that young man's attention. 
But the idea of goodness and the reason the Lord was questioning this young man for calling him good is that goodness is an inherent trait someone possesses. It's not something that someone acquires through good works. So if we take Jesus's words at face value, the only one that is good is God. When we take on his nature by being born again, we are now in our spirit man possessors of inherent goodness. So because of Jesus, we're now good. Now the soul obviously must be renewed to these truths and to the word because we've been trained how to be sinners for however many years it was before we were born again. And so the idea of working out your salvation is renewing your mind according to Romans 12 too, so that you know the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. So the more your soul is renewed with the word, the more you see who you are now in Christ, who he is in you, and your life begins to look outwardly uh, in line with the kingdom of heaven and his will being done on earth. In Galatians 5.23, this is referring to the fruit of the spirit. So let me just pull this up here in my notes. It talks about um, the fruit of the Spirit, which is, let me get down there. Uh, uh-oh, I accidentally went to uh, Galatians 4. Hang on one second. So we're looking at Galatians 5, and we're going to start at verse 22, where it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, some scholars believe that is the fruit, and contained within love is joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Notice that one of the attributes of love, which we now have because we have Holy Ghost, is goodness. So, again, because Jesus dwells in us, we now possess goodness. So, the whole idea of needing to be born again is central to the idea of the good news. Doing good works is not how you receive eternal life. Every human being is born a sinner, not by any fault of our own, but thanks to Adam and Eve. Now, we were also all born with the ability to choose God or not choose him. But the whole idea of the fact that people are inherently good and innocent is contrary to the good news of Jesus Christ. So this then makes the Christian left pushing these ideas contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you have some people, uh, heretics, which we'll touch on later, that say that because God is love, there's no such thing as hell. He's not going to send anybody to hell. In fact, anybody that dies will just go through like this blue zapper thing and all of the sin and everything will be done away with. But here's the deal. It's not the sin that gets you into hell. It's unbelief. And in fact, hell wasn't even created for humans. It was created for the devil and his angels. So when Adam and Eve decided to follow the enemy and hand over their authority, all of a sudden, everyone after that was born a sinner and born after the image of our now abusive father, and that would be the devil. So when we're born again, we're actually uh, deported, is a good word, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the light of his beloved son, according to, I believe, Colossians chapter 1. So, Every single human being born a sinner and like God and in his goodness, he provided a solution before there was even a problem. That's what he does. If you look at uh, in Revelation, I believe chapter 21 or 22, it says that he is the lamb that was slain before the foundation or genesis of the world. So before we even needed him, God, the father already provided him as a solution to the sin problem. Uh, you have Elijah, who was sent to the widow in Zarephath, and her son dies. 
God positioned Elijah to be there to be a solution to the problem of death that had entered her home. Unfortunately, Elijah didn't quite understand the nature of father and even blamed him for the death of his son. But the reality is God positioned Elijah to save her son before it was needed. And so with this, you know, um, uh, the ability to choose God, all notions that people were born gluttonous, born gay, born mean, born murderers, rapists, angry, fearful, etc. And for that reason, they must stay that way. That's a fallacy because we can be born again and recreate in his image, which is not any of those things. So the idea that we're born this way, which gained popularity with Lady Gaga's song, implies that we must accept everyone as they are. And you can see, of course, that I was being a little bit facetious and, you know, applying extreme examples, but, you know, like murderers and rapists and stuff. However, if you look at our current criminal justice systems, they're actually releasing these people back into the public. I mean, I can't help but think how the district attorney of Chicago, uh, in referring to the shootout that was uh, filmed and all of the suspects that were doing the shooting were clearly portrayed on the film. They never pursued criminal prosecution because it was simply a matter between gangs. So murdering someone in broad daylight with guns was not even pursued for prosecution because that's what gangs do. So we're seeing an implied that's just the way they are. In that decision. Now, we do know that socialists um, have the idea that out of chaos is order. So they have to sow as much chaos as possible. They have to destroy the middle class so that they can then have a society that will embrace socialist policies. Because when people are hungry, sometimes they will eat poison. And so our job is going to be to stand against these types of tactics and demand better through voting and protests and urgent education, which really is our action today. Urgent education, letting people know, hey, if you vote Democrat, you're voting for abortion. It doesn't mean if you it doesn't mean that you agree with it. That's just a fact. The uh, Democrat Party is a party of death. They believe in uh, voting or in abortion. So the institutions that the Democrat Party supports means that when you vote them in, you are voting in your support. Uh, urgent education on the laws that are be, being broken. Urgent education on the importance of voting as a Christian urgent education on the fact that there's a two-tiered justice system. Uh, you can burn down cities, and if you have the right um, uh, letters, like BLM and Antifa, then you won't go to jail. But if you are a conservative, and if you're a Christian, and you're a Trump supporter, you will go to jail. So there needs to be urgent education on what is going on in this nation and the rights that we have as citizens, our constitution, what that looks like. By the way, I'll be getting into some really interesting topics. I've been asking the Lord to provide scriptural proof that we are supposed to vote as Christians. And I've also asked him to answer the Freemasonry uh, dilemma because there's a lot of people that teach that America was not founded on Christian principles, that was founded by Masons and Illuminati, and that even uh, Washington, D.C. was designed uh, by Masons and to be demonic and evil and all of the other things. And uh, I have lots of good sources and resources to refute that idea. Why is this important? Well, Christians have abdicated their role in government and voting in righteous people or as righteous as we can get, which will really come down to, does that candidate support life or death? And we've abdicated that role because why should we want to save this country if it was founded by Illuminati and people that hate God? So all of that, all of these things are urgent education pieces that we need to do our best to begin to spread the word and get people out there to vote, to register Republican. Now, 
If we have a Republican that believes in abortion and a Democrat that doesn't, guess what? I'm going to vote for a Democrat. You know, it really is, number one, who is anointed? Who is God telling you that is anointed for the position? I prophesied that President Trump would be elected way before he even won the primary to be the candidate because I saw something in him. I saw he was anointed for the task and the Lord told me that he would be one that could deal with the Jezebel spirit. He's a Jehu in the spirit, which by the way, they called him a madman. And so as one prophet named Tommy says, uh, whenever the media calls someone a madman, they're probably God's anointed. So this born this way, this whole idea of that are being extremely applied in our criminal justice systems as well as in our schools and our government. But our true identity is centered in who Christ is, who he is in us and who we are in him now. And so that right there, uh, is the question that must be asked. So even people that don't know him, that's, you know, the whole idea behind evangelism is, you know, uh, Christ is in you. That's now the expectation of glory. Tag, you're it. Now spread it uh, throughout society. So with this salvation being redefined, uh, we have several people that, you know, salvation through unification of the world um, rather than unity in Christ. So Marxism, socialism, Buddhism, Islamic uh, beliefs, you know, all of those things, there's, you know, they all lead to the same destination is what people will tell you. And then they also want to make salvation more inclusive, which is basically universalism. And these are the very things that Paul was combating in his letters to the churches, especially the book of Colossians, which was for the Gnostics. And then, of course, the book of Ephesus or Ephesians. Now, universalism is a doctrine that purports that all people will experience some form of divine salvation after death and is one of many beliefs designed to redefine the nature of salvation. In non-religious circles, the concept is often defined as all roads lead to God. But within a Christian context, the doctrine is more commonly called ultimate reconciliation, and it holds that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, all men are saved. And one popular proponent of this was Rob Bell, who is a heretic. Uh, so basically, you know, the idea is, well, if there is no hell, which he wrote there isn't, then why does behavior matter? If there is no hell, then why did Jesus come? You know, again, the whole idea is not, you know, salvation is a first step. Salvation and being spirit-filled are the steps where you are able to walk into your assignment and bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Salvation is often reduced to just eternal life, which that's great that we should celebrate that every day. In fact, he says, don't, you know, celebrate that demons are subject to your name. Instead, celebrate that your names are written in the book of life. But here's the deal. Uh, salvation is what allows us and gives us uh, the authority uh, to operate in world systems and make nations disciples because we can now be an example of a new creation being that possesses the wisdom of God where we attract influencers to come and uh, have their problems solved. So, you know, hell shouldn't be the only or the primary motivation for a Christian to live right you know, uh, Paul told the church that Christ's love is to compel us, not obligation or fear of punishment. In fact, in John, it says that uh, mature love actually drives out the fear of judgment. But let me read this to you uh, out of page 90 or out of the book, The Christian Left on page 93. If no one is in danger of eternal damnation or separation from God, then why did nearly all of Jesus' disciples, Paul included, give their lives so that others could receive the gospel? Why would men con why would men convince that all roads lead to God die such horrific deaths in their attempts to win over the loss of the world? Crucified, burned at the stake, flayed, beheaded, and speared, Jesus' disciples demonstrated selflessly that the salvation of others is worthy of paying the ultimate price. Price. 
Lastly, and more directly related to our concerns regarding the Christian left and its affinity for socialist thought, the most troubling aspect of the doctrine shared by both universalism and ultimate reconciliation is a lack of choice. Whereas the gospel offers an opportunity to believe and receive the work of the cross, universalist doctrines make that choice for a person. It's forceful and domineering. The doctrines that give no choice, people are going to heaven whether they like it or not. True love always gives a choice, always allows one to say no. Hence why there were two trees in the garden. God will always provide his choice. If there was only the tree of life, we would not have had a choice. But, 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 but by providing two trees, mankind had a choice. So remove choice, you remove sin. Remove personal responsibility, you remove freedom. Remove sin, you remove the need for salvation. Remove salvation, you remove God. So remember, socialism is an atheistic belief system. It's a belief that the state is God. So that's always important to remember because they want to remove God from society. Now, this is unbelievable, but uh, Lucas Miles said that one study found that 52% of Christians believe that non-Christian faiths like Islam or Buddhism can lead to salvation. In the spring of 2020, amid the deadly COVID-19 pandemic, the church faced a similar choice. Stop holding services to comply with government mandates or maintain the pulpit for the sake of future religious freedom. Well, while this might seem like a minor issue to some, it represents not only the first time in history of our nation that the federal government forcibly closed churches, but also the first time in the 2,000-year history of the church where, where religious gatherings were halted in every part of the world, setting a precedence for a new level of globalized groupthink even more novel than the virus itself. For the left, religious liberty is a small thing to sacrifice for the sake of the collective and the health of the state. The church, however, will always face the temptation to resist or to give control to the state by bowing the proverbial knee to the kingdoms of this world. You know, you have people like, oh, no, you have to do what the government says, according to Romans 13. Not if it contradicts what God says. And God said, don't forsake or stop the assembling of yourselves together, even more so as you see the day approaching. And I'm not talking about church services. I'm talking about gathering as believers in order uh, to encourage one another, be in the word, be in worship, etc. Whether that's done in a building or in a home, don't care. It is a joining of two or more Christians to form an ecclesia, which is literally the ruling council of God on the earth, to bring his kingdom in that moment, his will in that moment. So, universalism, uh, the redefining of salvation, uh, there is no such thing as hell, all of these things are beliefs that the Christian left are willing to sacrifice and to encourage among uh, fellow Christians, or other, or actually Christians, I mean, I seriously don't see how you can be a Christian and a leftist. No joke. I really don't see that. Because again, the political party on the left believes in killing babies. And I find it very interesting how Christians will just swat that idea away like it's some fly that's bugging them. But it really does come down to, do you believe that in embryo stage, that baby was given life by God or not. If you do, you cannot support a party that believes in killing them. Now, to close uh, this week's episode, I also want to dive into what's called the Christian cabal. This is very interesting. I didn't know about this until I was reading the book, The Christian Left. And, you know, when you think about it, no takeover of a society is complete without a propaganda machine and false prophets and false teachers spreading the message, right? Well, the Christian left, they have uh, that propaganda machine, they have their false teachers, and they have their false prophets. So I'm going to dive into some things that uh, I discovered, and it really is uh, sad what's going on here, but I want to preface it to say, 
I firmly believe that homosexuality and lesbianism is a sin. So is anger. So is murder. So is gossip. There's actually a few things that are labeled as abominations. Homosexuality is one of those. So is sowing strife among brethren. The reason I say that is I am not condemning uh, anyone that is caught in this snare. But I refuse to ever, ever say that being a homosexual or a lesbian is God's will, that a person was made that way, just like we can choose not to be angry, not to gossip, not to drink uh, to the point of drunkenness, not to do drugs, etc., etc. There is a choice involved in this as well. People are not born this way. And so if you study actually a lot of the root causes of those things, especially homosexuality, it's actually a fatherlessness that is occurring. So there's no condemnation whatsoever in those that are caught in this snare, this sin. But on the other side of it, I'm also, again, not going to embrace it and say that the scriptures are just outdated. So in the Christian cabal, um, let me introduce to you a man named Jonathan Merritt. Now it says in this book, and I checked into him when I read this uh portion. If you want to know what's really going on, then you have to follow the money. A major major Christian media personality confided in me during a private call, tipping me off to what he refers to as a Christian cabal, allegedly made up of a group of Christian elites and leftists who control a significant portion of Christian publishing, religious news, faith films, and even higher education. He said it starts with Jonathan Merritt, a journalist who's written for publications like Religious News Service in the Atlantic. Merritt tweets or writes an article, then the story gets picked up by one of his friends at the Washington Post. From there, he went on to detail an interconnected network of journalists, bloggers, and university professors complicit in furthering pseudo-Christian ideas under the guise of orthodoxy. One Christian writer, J.D. Hall, describes a Christian cabal, or what he calls the evangelical intelligentsia, as an aspiring bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie, good grief, sorry, uh, can't say that word tonight, class of evangelicals who seek to change the attitudes, virtues, ideas, and set of priorities, and direct evangelicals not from the church house, but from ivory towers. So who exactly is Jonathan Merritt? Well, as stated, he's written uh, on many issues of faith and culture. He's one of America's most popular writer actually, writers, actually, on this. He has a couple books, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. He's an award-winning contributor to The Atlantic, a contributing editor for, editor for the week, and a regular columnist for religious news services. He's also a news service. Uh, he's been... Uh, published in like 3,000 articles in the New York Times, USA Today, BuzzFeed, The Washington Post, The Daily Beast, and Christianity Today. He also is a commentary on television, print, and radio news. Uh, He's a sought-after speaker at colleges and conferences and uh, churches on topics relating to spirituality, politics, and current events. He also holds a major of, Master of Divinity from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a Master of Theology from Emory University's Chandler or Candler School of Theology, and he's done graduate work at the General Theological Seminary of the Episcopal Church, and he's also gay. So he went public um, with his sexuality story, and uh, he wrote for the Religious News Service, service and March of 31st of 2014, when we were children, we used to think that when we were grown up, we would no longer be vulnerable, but to grow up is to accept vulnerability, to be alive is to be vulnerable. And so he wrote a book, Jesus is Better Than You Imagined, in which he shares his story of childhood sexual abuse and his adult struggle to understand his sexuality. Uh, Now, you know, obviously, if people struggle in this area, there's much compassion. But here's the problem. He's basically saying that he's open, he's openly gay, he's going to remain gay, and that God has no problem with it. Okay? 
uh, there's more things that are going on as well. Um, he was outed actually back in 2012. He explained that he'd been molested as a boy back then, and he held himself out as broken. Now he's just saying that he's gay, and he's positioning himself as the first openly gay evangelical. He was born in 1982, and he is the son of a Georgia mega church pastor. And he talks about how, you know, he owes everything he is or has achieved in his life to his father. Um, he says that he was seven in 1989 when a much older boy named Michael instigated some touching. And he described his fear of getting AIDS from being touched and things like that. But he says that his heterosexuality got damaged. By 10, he was suicidal. And then his dad became president of the Southern Baptist Convention from 2000 to th 2002. And he said, um, Merritt told the crowd, I want to make this statement and I want to make it as plainly as I know how. I love homosexuals. God loves homosexuals. Now, this is his dad, James, saying this, okay? Uh, and he says, Amid sustained applause, Merritt continues, but he loves them too much to leave them homosexuals. So, um, here, you know, his own son is obviously um, struggling with this. And then in 2009, he made waves by arguing for Christian tolerance. And so he talks about how God's model is a lifelong monogamous heterosexual union that we must balance this message with scriptural understanding that we're all sinners. Now, according to um, uh, the word, once you're born again, you are no longer a sinner. And that's part of the problem is a doctrine that teaches that you still are means that you will be. Uh, and then we have um, some people that wrote of their, um, uh, I guess, encounters. Um, shortly after these statements, a popular evangelical TV personality, Azariah Southworth, himself quietly gay, emailed Merritt, and they kept up the co correspondence, and it got flirty. They met up, and Southworth uh, writes later, he had bright blue eyes and a boy next door good looks. I was smitten. He seemed a little paranoid, though, and it wasn't hard to find out why. Now, the the accounts of what happened um, differ a little bit. But he, he says, Merritt says, that he shared his story of struggle with Southworth, and then they met up at, at, as friends. And as we were saying goodbye, we had physical contact that fell short of sex but went beyond the bounds of friendship. Afterward, I went back to my hotel room by myself and laid there sorting my clouded emotions. Southworth says it was actually a romantic date. They went bar hopping, and as Merritt was drinking, he got friskier. Southworth was concerned doing something that Merritt would regret. He said, I knew the guilt would that would ensue for him. I've been there. It's so freeing when you connect with a, another gay person before you're out. But when it's over, you re-enter the world of secrets and lies. You're surrounded once more by the immense social pressure to look and act a certain way within your faith community. Being gay makes you feel so alone. So he dropped him off at his hotel. He gave him a kiss goodbye. And he got out of the car. Now, Southworth had visions of romance, meeting each other's families, etc., but he monitored Merritt's anti-gay commentary and he got annoyed by his hypocrisy. He said Jonathan, Jonathan's approach to LGBT people and issues may be less extreme than that of the late Jerry Falwell, but in the end, the results of message are the same. Your sexual orientation is a sin and you need to change with God's help. By 2012, Southworth had invented him, reinvented himself as an openly gay ex-Christian blogger. He wrote a post outing Merritt. There were no sex details, just come out. Seeing the blog post, Merritt had a breakdown. He says, I fell to my knees next to my kitchen table with tears. Lord, I can't do this. I'm not ready. I'm not strong enough. He felt a reply came to him. It's time. Now, this is crap. This That wasn't Holy Spirit. So, anyway, um, unfortunately, Merritt's career benefited. And he became more politically progressive, more interesting to mainstream media, 
all the while remaining minimally acceptable to evangelicals. So, um, here's the deal. The, the whole idea of the Christian left hijacking Christianity, part of that is the more and more progressive uh, ideas they have that are actually blatantly contrary to uh, the Bible. And whenever it's kind of like, again, whenever you have that anchor of the word, it keeps you on task. But when you sever ties with it, remember the Christian leftists uh, believe in learning more from other sources than the Bible. And so it just gets more and more and more. And so now you've got, he wrote an uh, article, Biden's first hundred days, what's not for evangelicals to like. And that was January 25th, 2021, which is actually not Biden's first 100 days, so I'm not sure how that works. But uh, he says things like, you know, um, uh, what's not for evangel- evangelicals to like? On Wednesday, January 20th, before the scattered chairs in the National Mar- Mall had been collected, Tony Perkins, president of the Family Research Council, ominously warned his conservative Christian followers that President Joe Biden is Democratic Cronies would lead America to, quote, new levels of radicalism in which Christians would be persecuted and liberals would be canceling anyone who disagrees. President Biden is adamant that the hallmark of his administration will be tearing down thousands of years of human history, morality, science, and gender norms. He then quotes Robert Jeffries, a senior pastor at First Baptist Dallas and one of former President Trump, Donald Trump's advisors, had already signed the alarm the previous Sunday in a sermon that predicted savage times in which society begins to disintegrate. He too prepared faithful Christians for increased persecution from the government. He goes on to talk about how actually uh, most evangelicals should be happy with what he's doing. Immigration reform. Uh, is a good thing because it gives immigrants a chance to become U.S. citizens. Immigration reform has not occurred. Uh, Trump solved the border problem. It's uh, open borders is what they're doing. Uh, Biden's plan doesn't come close to resembling the kind of laissez-faire open borders approach that conservative critics have predicted. Oh, really? Okay. Well, why don't you go to the border, Mr. Merritt? Uh, And he goes point by point and like his approach to liberty and, uh, you know, all of the different things that he's saying is an outright lie. But when you believe that God told you that it's okay to be gay and you need to come out, what do you expect? So, of course, there has to be a liberal leftist agenda in what he does. So this is the kind of thoughts that are being perpetuated in uh, especially the evangelical uh, places. I mean, you have entire denominations that are embracing all kinds of crazy stuff like abortion and same-sex marriage and all of these things. And they're saying, again, that I guess the author of the Bible, God, wasn't uh, too up to date with the times. And we've got to basically change what he said and what he meant in the word. But remember, Christian lefts, uh, they don't believe that the Bible is the final word of God. Then we have another individual named Michael J. Kruger, the president uh, and Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary on his website, Cannon Fodder. He calls the practice that we're seeing with people like Jonathan Merritt, deconversion, in which the Christian left champions the dismantling of individuals' faith for the sake of so-called progress. Deconversion stories are designed not to reach non-Christians, but to reach Christians. And their purpose is to convince them that their outdated, naive beliefs are no longer worthy of their assent. Whether done privately or publicly, this is when a person simply gives their testimony how they once thought like you did, but now they see the light. So he references multiple names as being in the deconversion business, including Bart Ehrman, Rob Bell, Peter Enns, and Jen Hatmaker. So all of these people are leftists, Christian leftists, and they're progressives. He goes on to say that it should be acknowledged that each of these stories is very different. 
Ehrman moved from fundamentalism all the way to Gnosticism with no desire to retain the level, level, label Christian, and yet he is influencing Christians. In contrast, those like Bell would still consider themselves Christian in some fashion, maybe even an evangelical of sorts, which, by the way, I know several people he shipwrecked their faith. But what all those folks do share is the same background. They were all once what we might call traditional evangelical Christians and have now come to see the error of their ways. Whatever they embrace is no longer that version of Christianity. Now, in the past, these people would have been stripped of their credentials. They would have been labeled heretics until they repented. But not today. So these individuals continue to thrive as well uh, thrive as well-paid national bestsellers and are invited to keynote church conferences, quoted from the pulpit, and heralded by some as among the greatest minds. So um, this is interesting. Uh, Christian children's author Matthew Paul Turner came out as gay after he announced a divorce from his wife in July of 2020, sharing yet another tragic deconversion story, confessing, though my own faith evolved long ago to become LGBTQ+, affirming my journey toward recognizing, accepting, embracing myself took much longer. The deconversion of Turner, formerly the editor of Contemporary Christian Music Magazine, provides a perfect example example of the inner workings of the Christian left. Immediately upon Turner's coming out about his sexuality and failed marriage, Christian journalist Jonathan Merritt, past contributor for Religious News Service, with a peppered past of sexual ambiguity and scandal, tweeted out, I deeply admire my friend Matthew. Show him and the equally brave Jessica N. Turner some love today as they take this difficult journey. Marriage tweet signaled Catherine Post, also a contributor for Religious News Service and near propaganda level publication for the Christian Cabal, to release an article attempting to come to Turner's rescue by reassuring her audiences now progressive faith is reflected in his children's books, which emphasize God's radical inclusive love as well as his other writings. Turner said he would continue to write children's books with the support of his um, publishers. Okay, publishers. Who exactly are there? Well, his publisher is Convergent Books, an imprint of Waterbrook Multnomah. Uh, both Convergent and Waterbrook are owned by mainstream secular publisher Penguin Random House. Among their family of authors are other liberal Christian figures such as Jen Hatmaker, Matthew Paul Turner, Richard Rohr, Erwin McManus, Jedediah Jenkins, Jonathan Merritt, Brett Brown, Brent Brene Brown, and the late Rachel Held Evans. Interesting. The other problem we have that's causing a lot of confusion, especially concerning doctrine and the role of ministers in the church, are Christian celebrities. Now, this is from a man named John L. Cooper co-founder of the Grammy-nominated American Christian rock band Skillet. In August 2019 on his Facebook page, he said, okay, I'm saying it because it's too important not to. What is, excuse me, happening in Christianity? More and more of our outspoken leaders or influencers who were once faces of our faith are falling away. That is definitely happy, happening. And, uh, uh, You've got, well, several things going on. I was just studying today about how Jesus warned his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. He then said in Luke 12, 1 through uh, 3, what the leaven is. It's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is defined as playing a stage role. You're not being real. You have hidden motives and agendas and attitudes that... Again, they're hidden, and so you put off this persona, this um, uh, picture that you think others will want you to put off or that will hide your motives or that will support your agenda. And uh, that hypocrisy, he told us to watch and beware. We need to recognize hypocrisy and we need to be prepared for when it tries to influence and tempt us. 
So when you have a situation where you become a Christian celebrity, now your name's out there, whether it's through anointed worship music or it's through anointed, anointed teaching, that is where the most danger can occur when it comes to hypocrisy. And uh, uh, there was one guy who's a great example of this, and it's Eugene Peterson. So he's the guy that wrote the Message Bible. Uh, we've got others, Michael Gunger, Jennifer Knapp. All of them have made similar uh, announcements of a departure from their faith. But with Eugene Patterson, or Peterson, he um, was interviewed by Religious News Service regarding his book, As Kingfishers Catch Fire. At some point during the conversation, it turned to same-sex marriage. Peterson, who's 84 at the time, admitted I haven't had a lot of experience with the topic. I mean, how did he even get there, first of all? But see, this is all a setup. So unwilling to let the Christian go or the question go, the interviewer pushed deeply, deeper. If you were pastoring today and a gay couple in your church who were Christians of good faith asked you to perform their same-sex wedding ceremony, is that something you would do? Peter, who later called it an awkward question for me because I don't do many interviews at this stage of my life, initially said he would, but later he recanted his answer and he gave a lengthy statement to the Washington Post. Peterson's statement goes back to the remarks that Paul made to Titus, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they're unprofitable and they're useless, and a lot of these questions are hypotheticals anyway, and they force us to go outside of Scripture uh, to find answers, especially if you're a Christian celebrity. Who was the journalist that interviewed Peterson? Jonathan Merritt. Once referred to as a mainstream darling of the Southern Baptist Convention, Convention author and Christian speaker Beth Moore conflagrated controversy over her equivocal position regarding homosexuality, as well as her documented friendships with Jonathan Merritt and Jen Hatmaker. Beth pushed back in a 2019 tweet saying, can I just get this thing off my chest? I reserve the right uh, to sit with anyone at the high school cafeteria that I please. If you don't like them, you get to take your tray somewhere else. That's the beauty of it. You be you. But that's not what this is about. This is about the word of God. And the Christian lefts that are taking over Christianity. Uh, let's see. There's a definition of proud that's described in the scriptures. Those that are wise in their own eyes, not lovers of good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, warped and sinful. Men who claim to know God, but by their actions they deny them and men of depraved minds. Paul, in addressing the fact that one of the members of the church at Corinth was sleeping either with his mother or his stepmother, said you rather should have gone into mourning and have put, and have put out of your fellowship the man who is doing this. And so he then describes specific things that if a Christian is doing them, they should be kicked out. And that is, sexually immoral, whether it's homosexuality or having sex before marriage or outside marriage, greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. He's like, don't even eat with these people. Now, of course, people that are uh, not born again, they're going to naturally do these things. Um, there's another guy that has now become woke. So in October of 2020, a Newsweek article entitled Woke Christians Are Eroding Donald Trump's Base and Dividing the Evangelical Church named VeggieTales creator Paul Vischer as, quote, the tip of the spear of what critics call a woke Christian movement whose members have not only embraced the language of the left, but also its chief goal of defeating Donald Trump in the upcoming presidential election. Fisher, who has not shied away from his anti-Trump stance, has moved beyond the produce aisle to explore woke themes on his video podcast with episodes entitled Why Do White Christians Vote Republican and Black Christians Vote Democrat, Race in America and Rethinking Roe, Crotch Christianity and Militant Masculinity. According to this article, woke culture refers to, quote, Christians who embrace a pro-choice 
uh, position on abortion, as well as gay marriage, and especially Black Lives Matter. Fisher, though, is simply one of many prominent Christians to embrace woke culture. Yeah, VeggieTales guy. He's now woke. Woke to the devil's agenda, not God's. And then finally, you have the Christian cabal even in um, the Catholic Church. And uh, their main face, just like merit, uh, which is for evangelicals, in the Catholic cabal, you have Richard Rohr. And he's a wizard behind the curtain. Listen to this. Father Rohr, a Catholic mystic and septuagenarian <laughs> philosopher, has become a sort of rock star among the Christian left. His book, The Universal Christ, has been celebrated by U2's Bono, Jen Hatmaker, Jonathan Merritt, and even Oprah Winfrey. In the book, also published by Convergent Books, Rohr introduces a Christocentric panentheistic universalism where Christ is in everything and everyone, and everything and everyone are in Christ. In fact, Rohr goes so far as to separate Christ from Jesus himself, eclipsing the role of the carpenter's son in light of the ongoing progressive incarnation of Christ through creation, intimating that in Christianity we have made the mistake of limiting the Creator's presence to just one human manifestation, Jesus. For Rohr, Jesus seems to be an afterthought, and not nearly as important as Christ. Professor of Modern Christianity at St. Louis University and writer of the Gospel Coalition, Michael McClamon, Ph.D., offers an on-the-mark deconstruction of Rohr's theology and a masterful defense of more orthodox Christian thought. He says, Rohr's desire to distinguish Christ from Jesus was addressed by Arrhenius in his second-century work against heresies. There he laid down the principle that Christ cannot be divided from Jesus. The ancient saint added, It is therefore clear that the apostle knew no other Christ except this one alone, he who suffered, who was buried, who was raised from the dead, who was born, who speaks as man. Irenaeus stated that it was blasphemy to separate Christ from Jesus as some Gnostic authors were doing. So Rohr and his followers, losing one's faith may possibly be equally as beautiful, if not more so than finding it. One liberal pastor who spent time with Rohr described his own church in a tweet as, quote, great place to lose your faith. He continued, We're not rooting for you to lose your faith, but for most of us, being awake has meant seasons of doubt, unbelief, and evolution. We don't think it's a bad thing. It can be a beautiful thing. Yeah, so here's the deal. It's all about money. That's all it is. In um, Wikipedia, it talks about good old Father Roar. And obviously, he is promoting universalism. Um, it's Gnosticism as old. There's pseudo-scientific neo-paganism dressed up in Christian language. Um, his teachings are a combination of Eastern mysticism rather than actual biblical Christianity and universalism. Uh, this universal Christ, this, you know, everything leads to God type deal, the new age aspects that are in his stuff. Uh, he's got a book called The Divine Dance that's not about the Trinity, even though it uses Trinity language, but it's really just eclectic spiritual teaching. You know, urgent education is the action step that I gave at the beginning of this podcast. And I think it was at the end of the last podcast uh, or the one before it, where I said, urgent education is knowing the word. We need to know the word more than ever. And in Ephesians 4.11, it says, He himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man, to the measure, the same measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we're no longer children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of man in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The whole purpose of the fivefold ministry, which includes apostles, 
is the fact that they are to equip us in the apostolic faith that was delivered once and for all to the saints that is written in your Bible, in the epistles, in the New Testament. Read the whole thing. But if you want to know what the apostolic faith is, it's in the epistles. So we have these people that probably haven't read a Bible for decades. They're starting to just group a whole bunch of stuff together. And the reason they're doing that is because it is very profitable to do that. You have in Matthew 24, and this is important to understand, in verse 4, Jesus said, because he asked, what would be a sign of the coming? That's what they were asking him, the end of the age. Jesus said, take heed, pay attention, that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Now, most have interpreted that as saying that some people are going to come and say that they're the Christ. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying they're going to come in Jesus's name, and they're going to say that Jesus is the Christ, yet they're going to teach doctrine that is deceptive. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, creating a lawlessness that abounds and that will cause the love or agape love of many to grow cold. You also have in Malachi 3.17, um, oops, Hang on one second. Oh, good grief. Okay, in verse 17, it says, actually, let's start with verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord listened and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. The word name is authority, character, and reputation. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. One of the reasons that we're in this mess is because we don't have uh, apostles. They were basically shut out through wrong doctrine. It was taught that they no longer were needed. There were only 12. One fell. Paul was the final apostle, etc., etc., that's ridiculous. There were many apostles after. They just simply mean a sent one. But they're like the daddies. You know, one of the reasons the Antichrist is going to be able to gain power is because he's going to take advantage of fatherlessness, which is why BLM and other organizations want to destroy the nuclear family. Plus, Marxists want to destroy the nuclear family to create uh, chaos. Plus, you don't have any family other than the state. Earlier today, I was talking to an individual who was talking about a school in Louisiana that had 28 fights in one day. And parents got together and decided, you know what, as dads, let's just take shifts up at the school and start changing the culture. So the dads show up, and guess what? The fights end. Because fatherhood will end nonsense. And apostles are the fathers and the mothers of the church, but there's something about daddy. When daddy shows up, all of a sudden everybody starts, you know, behaving themselves. So it's the fear of the Lord. I remember when my son was little, you know, I could evoke the fear of the Lord in him and he would get in trouble, but sometimes he'd be a little bit stubborn or obstinate. And all of a sudden I'm like, you just wait till daddy comes home. I'm going to tell him everything you've done today. And he would obviously be very upset and then when, you know, Mike would get home, I'm like, you know, he's been a turd all day, blah, blah. And he'd look at Kent and say, son, you better cut that out. And he would. And I would get so aggravated. I want to finish with this thought here in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9. It says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. That word perilous means mentally fatiguing. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And you might be like, oh my gosh, yes, absolutely, we are in this time. But then Paul says this, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people, turn away. He's referring to people in the church. This is not sinners. 
He's referring to people that say they're Christians. They have an outward appearance of godliness, but they're hypocrites. They're playing a role. And they deny the power of the gospel to transform them from the inside out. So Paul's saying, don't even hang out with these people. He goes on and says, for this sort or of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janice and Jambres, <laughs> just added me some Spanish, you know, twister, resisted Moses, so did these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. Hence, why I have a problem with Jonathan Merritt telling, telling us that God told him to come out. So urgent education of yourself in the Word of God, taking the Word for what it says, knowing that God says what He means and means what He says. And that fear of the Lord is going to be very important, especially as we see more and more deception, more and more perilous times, more and more things coming up that can create a mental fatigue. That's why we need to rejoice always, pray in everything, and have thanksgiving for all as well. And uh, so I want to finish off with some good news. And like I said, next week, we're going to dive back into the Christian left. But uh, this story is from patch.com. And uh, it starts off with um, describing a man named Bob Ward, who dedicated his kidney to his daughter, M. He said that uh, she had suddenly fallen ill on a family vacation about a year before. And she had symptoms that included like sharp pains in her side, nausea that lasted for a month, loss of appetite, and lethargy. A gastroenterologist diagnosis was she was on the verge of end-stage renal failure caused by an autoimmune disease, vasculitis, which is an inflammation of blood vessels. Everyone keeps saying, oh, you're a, a hero, you're a hero, because he gave his kidney to his daughter. But he said, I'm not a hero. Any parent would do this for their child, I would hope anyway. And that's just the way I've done it. Take them both for all I care, as long as it gets better. And I just want to give a shout out to a couple heroes of mine. And that's my good friend, Monica Justice, who gave her kidney to her daddy so that he could live. And then another hero is a local businessman, which happens to be her brother-in-law, who when he married her sister, Jessica, um, she also had a kidney disease. And they found out that his kidney matched hers perfect. And he was able to donate. So they're literally one. Pretty crazy, huh? So... God bless America. Until next week, continue to pray, to intercede for all corruption to be exposed. 2022 is going to be a very interesting year of light shining and exposing things that are hidden.